Well, this is really, really, really fun for me to get to introduce Jay Allison. Because, with, I, first of all, I owe personally so much to Jay. And the Third Coast Festival owes so much to Jay Allison. In fact, I was thinking about the fact that there wouldn't be so many people in this room, but it also occurred to me that we might not be even gathering together as a festival or having this conference if not for some of the uh, genius ideas of, of Jay. Um, if you trace back the roots to most of the important developments in public radio, you're going to find this guy's fingerprints. He was among the founders of AIR, which once upon a time threw three magnificent conferences, which inspired the one that you are at right now. He started Transom.org and brought in scores and scores of young people to the, to the field, many of whom are out there right now. He started PRX with the vision of uh, creating like an Amazon.com for radio and with the help of many, many other very talented people made this dream into reality. And all the while he's been do making all these great things and creating new public stations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he's been making great radio and working as an independent from the get-go. He's always been an independent radio producer. He's won scads of awards, five Peabody's, and a TCF Gold our very first year in 2007. And as I said, he's been teaching and guiding others. And most importantly, and why we invited him to come out and uh, do our last, lead our last session of the conference is because he's really been a witness to public radio as it's changed and evolved, it's grown, it's gained some attributes and, and lost others. So I'm really excited. While this is the last session, it is not the end of the conference. I do want to make that point because I have a lot of notes for you after Jay is done. And with the, the award ceremony tonight and two more events tomorrow. So um, this is just the last official session. But I'm really excited to bring up Jay Allison. He's going to close the last session of the conference with In Praise of the Sandbox. Let's welcome Jay. Are you tired yet? Are you sick of listening? You know, my problem is the faces, you know. I, uh, I think you, you have to be a little bit dysfunctional to work in radio. I mean, why would you, you know, want to send your voice out invisibly to strangers, you know, or whisper in people's ears from a great distance, uh, or be intimate and utterly detached, you know, like a psychiatrist or something. <laughs> but I have a, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm more comfortable not seeing people. Uh, so it's always disconcerting to get up and see a lot of faces, which, you know, kind of interfere. You know, I, I have a little ADD. I do t kind of t too many things simultaneously. And then when there's a sea of faces there, I, I really, uh, it confuses me. So maybe I'll look, I'm going to look down here. I think I can go to his grave now. Oh, wait. I, um... I'm gonna, I, I, th I thought this session was called uh, Some of My Favorite Things, isn't it? Don't, don't, don't we always end with that idea, which I think has been, uh, th that's sort of how I organize these little clips I'm going to play. Uh, 
And an hour from now, they would be different favorite things. And some of the ones that were on my list I heard played already in the conference. I'm not going to play those. And I mean, it's an interesting exercise, really, because I look back, you know, I have a bookshelf of stuff going back to the 70s when I started in public radio. And, uh, you know, I perused PRX and, you know, my iTunes and I used Audio Hijack to pull things off the Internet and just to try to figure out what it is that that you really like. You know, I went back to a lot of pieces from the 70s that I remember thinking, you know, this is that that was a golden thing. And I listened to it now and it was and I can't understand what I loved about it. Uh, but it, it's been a really great exercise to figure out what it is you really like and then why and what you'd say about it. I mean, I recommend, you know, you should all prepare uh, a closing speech about your favorite things. The. And, and I, the, the, the sort of subtitle is In Praise of the Sandbox, and I think I find that the stuff I like best is the stuff where a producer or a teller is enjoying themselves in some way. And they really would like it if I enjoyed myself too, but fundamentally they don't care. Uh, and if that experience that they're having is sufficiently exciting for them, uh, I think chances are it will be for the rest of us. I think when people are trying to please me or some imagination of who I am or who you are, when you're trying to appeal to an audience, when you're taking your cue maybe from a focus group or even an editorial committee or maybe even an editor, um, the chances that you're going to have that sort of spontaneous joy in what you're doing uh, are less. And then if you fail that way, if you fail because you tried to please someone else, then you failed utterly. But if you fail because you tried to please yourself and you are pleased and nobody else is, you know, you, you still got something. <laughs> and if you've failed even trying to please yourself, it's your own fault, and there's great pleasure in that, I think. <laughs> it's so much better than having it be somebody else's fault. Um, I'm going to talk about the power of sound, too, uh, and how it's different from everything else. You know, I often talk about the power of sound to ambush, you know, because, and, and people have said this here in so many ways, but that you know, a picture you can hold out here. Every other thing we experience exists outside us, but sound uh, slips in. It inhabits us. You know, you don't have ear lids, and you're defenseless. And, uh, and it's ghostly. So uh, it can alter you, I think, sometimes, because it gets in without your permission, and then you're suddenly somehow changed because you didn't have a chance to protect yourself against it. I'm going to read. Uh, do, 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 you, do you all know the site transom.org? Uh, how many people know what that is? That, oh, that's good. Well, it's this, you know, it, then you, it's a site where we kind of pass the baton a little bit of the mission and purpose of public broadcasting. I'm a public broadcasting lifer. I have a, I'm kind of tied to the whole idea of that. And... Um, on Transom, we invite all kinds of people to come, and they present manifestos. 
And then, and there, and there's also tools. I don't know. You probably know Jeff Town. He's here, our tools editor, and a lot of our transom team, Vicky Merrick and Sydney Lewis, Samantha Brown, are all here. And we try to, uh, you know, it's a it's a workshop and an audition stage and uh, a way to hand off both the practical and philosophical uh, uh, kind of tricks of the trade and to keep public broadcasting fresh and and to keep a door open. Here I'm just going to read a little bit because I like this because it's so over the top. This is from Walter Murch, who you may know. He's uh, probably the I say the godfather of sound design in movies. In fact, he, he did the sound design for The Godfather. So, uh, and if you're a sound designer, he's, he's the man. He's who you pay attention to. Uh, and we had him as a guest on Transom. And here's Walter on, on sound. Hearing is the first of our senses to be switched on four and a half months after we're conceived. And for the rest of the time in the womb, another four and a half months, we are pickled in a rich brine of sound that permeates and nourishes our developing consciousness. The intimate and varied pulses of our mother's heart and breath, her song and voice, the low rumbling and silent and sudden flights of her intestinal trumpeting, the sudden mysterious alluring or frightening fragments of the outside world, all of these swirl ceaselessly around the womb-bound child with no competition from the dormant sight, smell, taste, and touch. Birth awakens those floor sleepyhead senses, and they scramble for the child's attention, a race ultimately won by the darting and powerfully insistent sight. But there is no getting around the fact that sound was there before any of them already waiting in the womb's darkness as consciousness emerged and was its tender midwife. So all our mature consciousness may be betrothed to sight. It was suckled by sound. And if we are looking for the source of sound's ability in all its forms to move us more deeply than the other senses and occasionally give us a mysterious feeling of connectedness to the universe, this primal intimacy is a good place to begin. So that's pretty convincing. <laughs> and a little awe-inspiring to think you're messing around with power like that. So I'm going to play some pieces. They aren't so much sound as they are voice, most of these. Um, and, you know, like I say, it's a mix. I'm going to sort of improvise and see which way we go. But I want to start with one from a guy named Keith Talbot, who I don't know if you knew him, uh, some of you probably did. He was in, I got into public radio when it started. I was like out of work, I'd been working in the theater and doing experimental theater and I didn't have a job. I was living in the basement of a friend's house uh, with his dog and, uh, and I've never had a job, come to think of it, since that time, but... Uh, uh, a guy came over for dinner, Keith Talbot, and he said, there's this thing down on M Street in public radio, it's just getting started, it's called NPR, and you ought to check it out. And he loaned me a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, a little Sony 800B, and it was a revelation. I started heading out into the world with this thing as a, as a kind of passport to ask anybody any question I could imagine. I had been working in the theater in the, the callow age of 20-something, and 
kind of exhausted myself thinking I didn't have anything left to say. I didn't, I didn't know enough about life to be able to say anything. How could I make like theatrical representations about life not knowing anything about it? And uh, so I took this machine and just started talking to everybody in this license to ask questions and to satisfy curiosity. It was, it was a really a revelation. And I discovered that public radio is open to citizens, that it was okay, I was invited. In fact, NPR didn't have a security system. I just walked in all the time. I um, I'd go in at night. Uh, they didn't lock the place, I don't think, practically. You kind of knock on the back door behind the elevators, and I think they thought I worked there. Um, and that's how I became an independent producer. Uh, and um, Keith had a show called the Radio Experience Special. So I'm going to just, I, I listened to a bunch of these and I could have selected any one of a number of excerpts. Uh, but I think you'll hear in this one, this figure, mid-70s, uh, and this is, you'll hear it, that you'll hear, I think it's Mike Waters' voice, who it, you'll hear this presentational and rather formal tone that public radio can still adopt, but it, it did to a greater extent then, but also the, the weirdness possible, which was a really intriguing combination for me. This is from, I think it was an hour, he would do hours, they were long and presentational, and I think this was on war. Although you managed to put it out of your sight, the prospect that nuclear bombs might prematurely end your life is a vision that is never too far out of your mind. It's as if a part of you is always sitting inside NORAD headquarters beneath Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. Watching for the first sign of Soviet missiles with their hydrogen warheads. Watching the horizon as it's projected on the large map. Watching for the war. Everyone has a vision of where it will happen and what will happen. In the back of everybody's mind is the knowledge that those bombs could go off any minute and it affects every one of us. As soon as the bomb goes off, my job as a physician will be to go around and pass out enough morphine for everybody so that they go out into death without suffering excessively. The only thing that a medical commission was able to come up with as a suggestion for what to do to prepare the medical facilities for nuclear war was that we should stockpile morphine in order to numb the pain of people who are going to inevitably die. And that's exactly what we've done. The United States is the largest dope pusher in the world, prospectively. As soon as the bomb goes off, the morphine will be opened up and my job as a physician will be to go around and pass out enough morphine for everybody so that they go out into, into death without suffering excessively. That's all we can do. That's, that's the prospect. Keith used to say, um, 
Most of his pieces would would use the you. It would talk to you as the listener, and then they would he would kind of implicate you. They were called the radio experience specials, and he would say people listen to uh, the radio to get the time and the weather, and I think it's my job to invent the time and the weather. Uh, Keith is also he got a lot of us in the radio. There was a guy named Larry Massett. He, it was his dog in his basement. I was living in. He he became, he, uh, he got in the public radio. Jesse Boggs, uh, uh, Joe Frank was hanging around there, and uh, Ira Glass. Ira was uh, Keith's uh, intern. Um, Keith should come to this conference sometime. He doesn't work in radio anymore. Uh, I also, I'm interested in that bite because of the, it changes time, you know, and I've been thinking a lot about this, I'm not going to stray off into this, but about our attention span and my own lamenting of my own shortened attention span and my own decreased patience for existing, you know, you, you, back when I listened to this, I would take the time to sit and be, you know, uh, in an experience that I would just experience, and now I'm thinking, you know, I got shit to do, you know, and, uh, and I'm hurrying myself through the day. And I think we're partly, and I also feel like I'm partly responsible for that. I mean, media is partly responsible through the sort of quick cutting, and we'll give it to you like this. And, uh, and I worry that I don't have the patience. And that bite, the guy repeats himself. I mean, you know, there's a natural cut in there that you make. He says exactly the same thing twice. I would cut that now. But should I? The next cut is uh, from a piece that was influential on in all of us, incredibly provocative. I don't play it again so much for the production because it was in that another hour, uh, but to harken back to that notion of the power of sound and, uh, and this, I think, this, the, the evil power of sound. Uh, it's, uh, it's from a kind of remarkable documentary that was produced in, I think it's the early 80s. Uh, it was done by Deb Amos and Noah Adams and James Reston Jr. It was called Father Cares. I don't know how many of you heard it. It was um, uh, about the Jonestown uh, mass suicide. Just re really briefly, if you don't know about it, it was Jim Jones. He was charismatic and crazy. Uh, cult leader, preacher, and he took about a thousand people down to Guyana and uh, created a community down there, and then and, and it became a crazy place. And uh, I guess a, a congressional envoy went down to check it out, and, uh, and they murdered them, and then Jones had his whole tribe drink Kool-Aid, and they killed them, so 900 people killed themselves uh, in the jungle. But he taped himself. And this is just one of those things that, you know, having heard it just sort of stuck in my mind and kind of reinforced to me the kind of, you know, the possibility of the power of the human voice, and in this case, the most appallingly negative power you can. He would have these great convocations in the jungle, and you'll hear the sound, which is an unearthly one, of people affirming his message in the background. He's on mic. All these are short excerpts, by the way. Hate is mine, and I got to fight it day and night, and what else does the other line? Love is the only weapon. Shit! Bullshit! Martin Luther King died with love! Kennedy died talking about something you couldn't even understand, some kind of generalized love, and he never even backed it up! He shot down! Bullshit! Love is the only weapon with which I got to fight. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight! I got my claws, I got cutlasses, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a hell of a lot to fight! I'll fight! I'll fight! I'll fight. I'll fight. I'll fight. 
Let them hear it in the night! back at the at the time it was they had an interesting i mean they reston got the tapes through freedom of information act and they tried to figure out how to tell the story and they did an original version which was sort of a standard documentary in nature but then they made a sort of very provocative choice which was they cast noah adams as one of as in a kind of a imaginary one who survived and he spoke it in a in a in a first person uh as as though he'd been there uh, which was an unsettling and interesting choice, but the tape itself was so astonishing that uh, you know, hearing an hour of it, it was, you know, I mean, it's like hearing Hitler's broadcasts or uh, or the way they used radio in Rwanda, and it's as I say, it serves as a reminder of the kind of power that Walter Murch talks about uh, in the wrong hands, and uh, and I think you can sometimes hear it on some radio in this country uh, today. Um, for a change of pace, this is one of my favorite producers and a friend of mine, and I, I, I could have picked anything of his to play, but I, uh, he's Scott Carrier, he lives out in Utah, and he got into public radio. Uh, he was listening to it and decided he wanted to do it, and he uh, just he got a tape recorder and hitchhiked across America from Salt Lake and showed up at NPR with you know with no advance phone call or anything, just showed up with his tapes. And uh, his first piece was a document of that trip hitchhiking. And uh, it was produced, I think, for Weekend All Things Considered by uh, Alex Chadwick with Scott. And Scott's an, he's an amazing writer. He has an incredible voice. Uh, and you know, I recommend his work to you where, wherever you can find it at Hearing Voices, which is a collective of producers to which I belong. You can hear a lot of Scott's work on that site, hearingvoices.com, which is a, a good place to go. And he's done great stuff for This American Life and others. But uh, this is not his writing, which I think is the thing he does, he does the best. He's a reluctant writer in a way. He, he likes tape, and he just, he's always looking for the best tape and then feels he can't get it good enough, and then he has to write. Um, but this one, and, and this is another story I would say that relates to some of the pitch sessions I've been hearing, which is, which are really interesting. But you know, I never pitched a story ever because one, I'm not that wasn't that good at it, and number two, I didn't know what the story was. So to try to tell an editor ahead of time what I was going to do was futile, and uh, and for me, the pleasure of the thing 
is finding the story. And I don't know yet what the story is. And I don't want somebody else telling me what it is. So you have to be willing to maybe not get it on the air. And you have to like use your last piece to subsidize the next one. But I found it much more useful to just go do whatever I wanted and then take it and say, here, would you like that? Because then I didn't have to explain it. It could explain itself. And then if they don't like it, then you can take it somewhere else, you know. Um, and there's, there's risk in that, but the, uh, you know, the reward for that way of working is great because you get to work, as I say, like an artist and you get to blame yourself. Um, so, you know, I mean, I just recommend that as an, as an alternate way to pitch is just to do it. Scott did a piece about his neighborhood. I don't know how he would have pitched it. Uh, he said, I just want to go hang out in my neighborhood. It's a remarkable portrait. It's a, he just sort of goes door to door and encounters his neighbors. It's a, about connectedness and alienation, and it would pitch terribly. You wouldn't take it because you wouldn't know what he was going to get. But here he is. I think he was recording bird sounds uh, high up in a tree. Hey. Hey. Son? Yeah? What, 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 are you, what are you doing up in that tree up there? Well... Huh? I'm a neighbor of yours. I live around the corner. Well, who are you? My name's Scott Carrier, and I live around the around the corner down there in G Street. You don't live around the corner here. I know just about everybody that lives on this block. No, I, I do. I live down there. I live down there. Where do you say you live? Around the corner down there. Down where? Down. I live. I live down on G Street down there. G Street. Yeah. G Street and what? About Ninth Avenue. Well, what what are you doing up in that tree? Well, you're acting like a damn fool. Now come on down. That, that's, that's over 20, 20, 30 feet high. If you fall down, God knows what, I'm responsible and it'd be a hell of a mess. Now come on down. Just let me stay up here a little bit longer. I'm no, almost I'm done. I'm not going to let you stay up there one more minute. And, and uh, if, if I could, I'd climb up and, and take you down by the seat of the pants. This Good is... Lord, you can't even have a tree on your property anymore for fear that, that a, a fool like yourself is going to climb up it and fall off. Come on down. I, I, are you going to force me to call the, uh, the cops? So I don't know how you'd pitch. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go climb a tree and then my neighbor's going <laughs> to come out. I think it's going to be a good piece. You know, I mean, stories happen to Scott. I mean, I think you can put yourself in the way of stories, uh, and he's good at that. Um, and he's odd, you know. And I, but I treasure his oddness. I mean, I would say I treasure all of our oddness because what else is an individual but the thing that's different from all the rest of us? And uh, you may hear in some of these pieces that's that's what you're hearing and that's why you listen is because it's a it's a person and um, and it's um, uh, you know special in a, a way that no other is the, uh, I think you know maybe more influential ultimately than just about any other individual producer working is uh, Ira Glass 
And Ira and I have known each other since he was like 19 when he was working with Keith. And uh, I, I, I'm going to play something old of his, well, well before uh, This American Life, uh, when he was in his 20s. Uh, but I think you'll you you won't be able to mistake uh, some of the qualities he has. That even at that age, he was kind of uh, brave enough to uh, let exist and put on the air. So this is uh, he's interviewing a uh, a self-described dead animal man. He's going out uh, as many of us have with uh, uh, animal control officers and. Uh, and this, and he's he's been out all day with them collecting animals off the pavement and that kind of thing. And uh, and he, there's two, two of them are sitting together at the end of the day. It's a very short piece, it's a morning edition piece, I think. Uh, and I was talking to the guy. All the animals are taken to what Mr. Hicks calls the box, a walk-in freezer near the city incinerator. There, the animals are lifted into metal oil barrels and left. Does this job change the way that you see animals? To me, no. To me, they, they, they did, they did. You know, they don't change. Come them. on. You know? I don't believe you. I feel like I see animals differently just from seeing those dogs in one of those gray plastic. Them, yeah. I mean, all you see them decompose. Well, that's, you know a, did, that's right? a new point of view. Okay. Uh, they be de decomposed. You know they, they're not alive when they're alive. They'll be still running around you. I tell you, the next time I see a dog on the street, I'm going to think to myself, I'm just going to remember what those dogs in the back of your truck look like. Well, they look dead, right? They look dead, yeah. Okay. You know they are not alive? Because they're alive, they be running around. If you see a live dog, you say, well, you be careful now because one day you may be back in the back day. Do you ever see those pictures of, um, I guess it's the angel of death, you know, a big black hood and a, kind of a sickle guy, you know, holding mm -hmm. a sickle, yeah. Yeah. The Grim Reaper. I've seen a picture like that, yeah, if I can say. Yeah. Why should I let that bother me? Well, it shouldn't bother you because that's who yeah. you are for these dogs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's you. Well, I'm the, no, I'm the angel. See, when they die, I'm gonna take them to him. <laughs> I'm the I'm the undertaker. Yeah. Right. I'm the undertaker. Mm-hmm. Keep them from laying out the streets, smelling it. Oh, let birds pick on them and all that kind of eat them or something like that. I take them off the street. Give them a decent disposal. There you go. I mean. He takes such pleasure in conversation, and you know you can hear him listening. I mean, that's what's great about so many radio interviewers is that you can hear them actively listening. I mean, Terry Gross is like that too, uh, and it's worth hearing. Just it's, and it's in the rhythm and the pace and the way he's still absorbing the. You know, he's never moving on to the next question, and he's willing to be thrown off course. And it's also two people enjoying one another's company and enjoying conversation in a way that's, you know, uh, you know, most journalism doesn't permit. You know, you don't you don't get it. I mean, you know, you do in a, in rooms like this where people are playing that kind of work, but when you turn on the radio, you don't you don't get it so much. Um, and you hear his enthusiasm, you know, and his pleasure. You know, he and I have talked about, you know, in terms of his thinking about an audience. I mean, they, th that show is very eager to please an audience, but really they're about, you know, not boring themselves and wanting themselves to be saying, as they, at the, as they said at a session here, you know, just, oh, wow, you know, the, the, I've, I've got to tell somebody uh, this story, you know. And um, it, you... you 
you ought to check on the transom blog. David Maxson, who's here, uh, has been blogging this conference. And feel free after it to go post up there on, on transom. In fact, it's nice because we get thousands of people reading that thing and people who haven't been able to be here. So you could post it. There's one topic where you can post. But David had a doctoring session with Ira, who was here yesterday. Ira's sort of a phantom presence. Uh, but... Uh, uh, and he interviewed Ira, and I recommend the, the two little MP3 files he put up uh, uh, with David just sort of asking him the kind of basic questions about, you know, getting into radio. And uh, David said, uh, it's, uh, I realize I've got a lot to learn. And uh, Ira said, no, I totally disagree with you. You don't. It's not that complicated. Uh, he said, all you have to do, I like this phrase, you have to notice what's interesting. Uh, and then the tape recorder tape machine just records the conversation and then you just make logs and you pick the stuff you like best and you put it in a good order and you play it for someone else and that's radio another guy who uh, influenced me early on and I you know I, 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 I was crazy about him and he's been here a lot is Robert Krulwich who's utterly odd in himself. And, you know, he's not, it, it's not useful to you to say, I'm going to be like Robert Krulwich, or, you know, as Sean was saying, to be like Sean. But it is interesting, I think, to think about what is essentially you. And, and a lot of people use radio as a process of kind of self-discovery, figure out what is my voice? How do I sound like? What do I believe? What, you know, those are, uh, I mean, I think I use it a lot that way to figure out what... Uh, you know, what I think and what I care about and, and what I'm willing to stand up and say out loud, you know, to millions of people. And Krulwich, um, uh, you know, he, he talks about when he was a little kid, he was the kid that everybody wanted to play with because he was always inventing games and doing weird stuff. And, uh, and he would just kind of follow his impulses. You can hear it in his radio work. Again, if you haven't heard him, go, see, go to Transom and read his manifesto, which is wonderful, and there are a lot of clips of his work. There are, there are at Third Coast, too. Uh, and I listen back to a lot of his old pieces, which are, you know, so charming. He does characters, his way of carving up time, and his rhythms are utterly different than anybody else. It's like things pop like crazy. It's crazy uh, uh, messing around with, uh, with sentences and timing. But I'm just going to play a little bit from uh, the, the new show he's doing with Jad Abumrad called Radio Lab. Uh, we're starting to move into the present tense here. We're out of the 70s and 80s. Um, and uh, this is, you know, I could have picked any section, but I just play this for the pleasure that they're obviously having in telling us a story and figuring out how they're going to do it in this popcorn way. I uh, think the relationship between brain and body is more like the relationship of a commander to a commandee. Right. The brain makes and the orders. The, and the body responds. But I think the more accurate way is to think of this as a conversation between the brain and the body. How do you mean? Well, because any movement, even a very basic one, let's just say uh, wagging my tongue, that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Very simple, really, but it still involves three steps. First, the brain has to issue the command. Tongue station, tongue station. This is mission control, commence wagging. Second, 
The command must be executed. <laughs> and third, now this is the crucial step. The tongue, in this case, reports back to the brain. Mission control, we have a wagging. I repeat, we have wagging. Thereby completing the loop. Mission control to foot. Come in foot. Mission control, this is foot. Give me your coordinates, over. Roger that, mission control. Now, My this happens, this conversation you're hearing right now. Zero, uh-huh. Niner Alpha. It repeat, happens constantly. Niner, All Niner, over Alpha. your body, your brain is issuing commands. Left knee, come in left knee. Parts of your body are receiving the commands. This is left knee. And reporting back. Right leg standing by. And this conversation adds up to something really quite important. It adds up to a sense of yourself. It's an unconscious sense which really allows you to to move normally. I mean, that's a great lead to an interview, you know. Uh, And then then they go on with that doctor. But, you know, they they never, you know, they never rest. Their own interest in what they're doing never calms down, you know. They're like uh, insatiably... Uh, restless and curious uh, and the rhythms you know I mean it's really worth studying because the punctuation of the way and Jad does a lot of this mixing you know and the silence and the bells and the screen it's just it's really you know a wonderful kind of tapestry that they put together here's kind of here's one that's the opposite uh, it's just you know she's one of uh, my favorite people to listen to um, and this is you know, this is great writing and uh, delivery, and it's also about noticing what's interesting. Uh, I pulled this from the middle of Sarah Vowell's audio book. It's not even radio, for Assassination Vacation, and she's standing in front, you know, where she goes to the... It, it, the book is about uh, her obsession with uh, people who kill presidents, and she goes to the sites of everything, drags people along with her, and uh, here she's standing in front of Garfield's statue and and noticing something about it the garfield monument a bronze sculpture by john quincy adams ward was commissioned by the slain president's old army buddies it stands at the bottom of capitol hill facing the mall the sculpture intends to present a late 19th century vision of dignified classicism But the first thing a present-day visitor notices is that it's exceedingly gay. A life-size, fully-dressed Garfield stands on top of a giant shaft. At the foot of the shaft at eye level, three skimpily clad male figures recline, meant to portray three phases of Garfield's life, the student, the soldier, the lawmaker. They could not be hunkier. The soldier is a glistening piece of meat with his shirt off, grasping for his sword. The student is supine, come hither, resting his hand on his face, lounging around, reading a book. And Garfield looms over them, like a dirty old man pulling up in his car, about to take his pick from a lineup of street hustlers. That is one interpretation. Well, that's the point. And then she goes on and talks about scholarly interpretation, but she doesn't forget to say what she thought, you know. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's in this, you know, she's emphatically first person. But, you know, I know you probably had the the experience of telling us, you know, of doing a radio story, but then turning to your friend and, and saying, you know, what was really interesting about that. And you tell them an entirely different story, you know, one and one that's probably, uh, probably better. I, you know, I... I uh, host and curate this series this i believe that's on uh public radio has been now for three years and it's an amazing uh project to work on uh which i again work on with the same uh gang of people vicky particularly and uh 
they, they, we have an intake where people send us essays, and we've got over 33,000 people have done this now, uh, written personal statements of belief. And they, often, they, write the, they write the essay, and then we have a space for reflections. And so often what they say is, God, it was so hard to write that essay. What I really wanted to say was... And then they kind of write it again, and it's much better. Uh, which is something to think about as a writer or a radio producer is to maybe go back after you've made it and say, what was it, you know, what did I really want to say? Or what am I telling my friends about? Uh, the other thing that's amazing about that series, uh, this I believe is, uh, I'm not going to play any of those as much as I really do love a lot of them. Uh, those are all on the website too, and you can write your own. You're welcome to. Uh, the... Uh, uh, is, uh, is, is coaching people when they're reading their own words, which I, ca I call up everybody and, and, and am on the phone with them when they're reading, and the moment when they start to hear themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you, when you read, when you deliver, I think what people are listening, they're not listening to your voice so much as they're listening to your mind. You know, they, they listen to you thinking. And when that connection's made, that's when they pay attention. If you're just, uh, if you're reading the words, we'll, you know, we'll drift away. But if you have that sense of like people a little bit on the edge and, you know, kind of wondering what they're going to say next. And sometimes you'll have the experience with these essayists where you can hear them hear themselves. And uh, it's always an, kind of an exciting moment because it makes this kind of loop of authenticity. Uh, this next bit is just a, a play on that notion, you know, how you do that. And it's by a guy named Earl Pomerantz. It's, it's on Transom. He's a friend, of, a friend of ours on Transom is uh, Jonathan Katz, the comedian, uh, who is Dr. Katz's professional therapy, if you watched Cartoon Network or Comedy Central, I guess. And Earl Pomerantz is a friend of John's, and he sent us this tape for Transom about that very challenge of reading your own words and sounding like yourself. The only thing I don't like about talking to you on the radio is I'm not really talking. I'm reading. Like the line, I'm not really talking, I'm reading, I read that. And the line, I read that, I read that too. I'm reading this whole thing, including the line, I'm reading this whole thing. It's not really natural to read to people, unless it's children going to bed or the people you're reading to are blind. But here, you read. And what at least to me is worse, you're supposed to make it sound like you're talking. Maybe I'm weird, but to me, when you're reading but pretending you're actually talking, I don't know, it feels like cheating. Personal means telling, doesn't it? It's like, I'm going to share my deepest feelings with you, but instead of talking, I'm going to look down at this paper and try to say all the words. It's, it's not the same. Reading's not talking. Something gets lost, something human. For one thing, when you're reading, you can't suddenly think of something new, like you can when you're talking. Because if you think of things while you're reading, you'll mess up the reading. Like, I, I just thought of something, but I couldn't say it because I'm reading, and now I've completely lost my place. No, I haven't. I'm reading this whole thing. You see how dishonest this is? Reading and pretending you're not is evil. Uh, yeah, Earl Pomerantz. He's a TV writer. Uh, so the, you know, your, other opportunity, your other option is to improvise. And I want to play this little bit of tape. Uh, 
It's from Natalie Edwards, who I think is here. She's a young producer in Brooklyn. It's from a series that I just finished producing with Emily Botine. Emily cut this, and there's kind of pleasure in the way it's edited. Emily's great at doing these kind of... Uh, uh, kind of fast cutting, intercutting people, kind of talking to themselves. Uh, it's a series about nature and the natural world and people's connection to it. Or in, uh, in Natalie's case, uh, an utter lack of connection, uh, uh, absolute, uh, uh, more than disinterest, a fear of nature, uh, and uh, that was instilled in her by her mother, who told her it was just best, to, you know, that you couldn't trust nature and it was full of trouble. It's just best to stay away. So. Uh, Natalie lives in Brooklyn. She'd never been into Prospect Park, so we uh, we gave her a tape recorder and had, we did an, uh, an intervention. Uh, and this is her, uh, as cut by uh, Emily Botine, and it's a, it, you know, she's not reading. The reason why we're here is because I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to get over my fear of nature. Right now, we're outside of the park. We're outside of the park. The trees are scary because they're tall. They hover over you like they're about to fall. They're like insects. All right, so part of my intervention <laughs> is I'm going to walk through the park. We're just going to like take it slow, one step at a time. Okay, now I'm going to touch the grass. It feels all right. It just, I don't know. Now my hand is dirty. Ooh, now we're off the grass. Yay! I would clap, but I don't want the dirt from my right hand to go on my left hand because I touched the grass and the grass was dirty. I really do want to like start liking nature. I want to like nature. I want to feel what everyone else is feeling when they come to the park. But what I really want to do right now is go home and take a shower. So Natalie's, uh, Natalie's got a boyfriend who's uh, you know, an outdoors person. And uh, she said, uh, I don't know, he's, he wants us to go out and sleep outside. I don't know, he calls it camping. <laughs> so I don't know, she may have to do that. Uh, I, I'm gonna put the, I, I want to move to some of the things that uh, we do at our, you know, I started these public radio stations. I live in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and uh, uh, after much kind of, you know, ignorant and fanatical effort, uh, got the public radio stations started there uh, for Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket and Cape Cod. It's east of Boston. Um, and we were trying to figure out how we, you'd have a radio station uh, that, you know, didn't sound like a public radio, that sounded like a, a place. Uh, and what we could do with these great blocks of programming, you know, I mean, all the radios delivered from somewhere else. I mean, you know, most of the public radio stations in this country really just take a feed. Um, you know, the program directors make like a, two decisions a year, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's not all of them. I mean, there are great program directors out there, but there are plenty that are just asleep at the switch. And, you know, they're, they're tired out and they're not doing it anymore. And there's, you know, and they can, they can just get what's coming down. Uh, we figured we had 
the interstitial time, you know, these little breaks between the blocks of programming that we could work with. So before we went on the air, it's also a remarkable thing to get a new public radio station. There's nothing there, you know. You have you 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 can start with this blank canvas and figure out what you're going to put on it. And some days we do really well, and uh, you know, other days we sound sort of like a public radio station anywhere. But but not not so much because of what we call the sonic IDs, and they are they, they we just give our station calls at the end, and then the voices of the community sort of pop in all day long. They any Anytime there'd be a station ID, uh, you're going to hear a little story or a vignette or a poem or an oral history or something told by the people who live where we do. Uh, because our feeling was all we have as listeners to any public radio station, all we have in common is that place. We have an affinity for public radio, I suppose, but the only other thing that ties us is a connection to the place we're in. And in fact, I mean, my view is public radio stations will survive only by capitalizing on that connection to localism, because otherwise it's all going to get delivered from somewhere else. Uh, I mean, right now, most commercial s stuff is coming from a corridor in Denver somewhere, and they just pretend to be wherever you are, you know, go on the internet and figure out what the weather is and say it as if they're there. Uh, so, these little community voices pop out, and I'm, I just—I I have to say—I just, in terms of favorite things, these are really some of my favorite things. And, they're, and everybody makes them in the station. The team here that I mentioned earlier uh, puts them together. We invite people to come take out tape recorders. You know, I mean, the, the organizing principle of my work has been sort of passing on that favor that was done for me by Keith Talbot, and it's, you know loaning out the permission to speak and uh, and listen to others speak. So we, uh, you know, we, we do voicemail. We, when we have interns, they come out and we send them out. And they, uh, you know, it's, and it's a wonderful exercise, too, because crafting these 30 and 60 second stories are, uh, you know, they contain all the, you know, elements of narrative. Uh, and so I just want to play you some of the ones uh, that, that I like. There's so many. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them now. Uh, and, and we need more. I mean, the only problem with starting a project like this is then you have to, you have to keep doing it. Uh, so, well, here's one. Eileen McGrath on Nantucket. All right, here we go. Now you're going to see the correct way to put the wash on the line. If it's a windy day, you've got to decide which way you're going to stand, because otherwise you'll have them wrapped right around your head as you hang them up, you see. If I were a careless laundry hanger, I do this. I just threw it over the line and then, uh, you know, speared it with a couple of clothespins. Very careless work. You should do it just exactly the way, every, so everything is shipshape. It's a lost art. You're listening to 90.1 WCAI Woods Hole Martha's Vineyard and 91.1 WNAN Nantucket. The Cape and Islands NPR stations. Just the voice, you know. Just the, sometimes they're, they're best when they don't start with me IDing somebody, but uh, the voice pops out, and it sounds like a mistake. Uh, and you know, I think there's. Uh, it gets your attention. You know, there's nothing to focus the mind like getting lost. And when you 
I, I think when they're successful, uh, and one of these voices comes on and starts talking, is they're unheralded, they don't have titles, they just pop out in the middle of the news. I think they're successful when you turn and you look at the radio. Because you think something went wrong for a second. And then you catch on. And I think they're like refreshing, sort of sorbet-like experience. Uh, here's one, a fairly recent one. This is recorded by uh, an oral historian, Lindsay Lee. Uh, and it's about a woman uh, named Mildred who uh, made a trip to the Midwest out near here and, uh, and didn't like it. We got out to Michigan on Lake St. a beautiful spot. I hated the place the minute I stepped into it. I couldn't stand it. The late Mildred Huntington of Vineyard Haven. We finally got this place up right on the lake, very, very close, closer to water than this. I would walk down there, take a deep breath, and there's nothing. It's complete void. Didn't smell like salt water. There's no smell to it. I couldn't stand the place. I didn't like the food out there. You couldn't buy any baked beans unless you had the tomato sauce in them. I don't like beans with tomato sauce. You couldn't buy any salt mixed pork so I could make a chowder. You couldn't buy any hardtack that goes with the chowder. You couldn't buy any New England rum, which Gail and I both like to have a drink of at night. There wasn't anything about that place I liked. It was horrible. You're listening to the Cape and Islands NPR stations. You know, and some of these are, uh, like I say, you know, when you just hear her start to talk, you go, what? This is one uh, made by Chelsea Murs, who was uh, interning for us and working on Transom and then uh, went and uh, has been working at Open Source. She would go out with recorders. She did a lot of great ones there. But this one is, I like it because she found a guy who was bicycling and she was asking him about bicycles but it, the piece ends up being, a, uh, well, I'll, I'll just play it. And, and it, it's, the thing is, it uses, this, it uses the radio in this weird subtextual way. It's like we're just used to now getting, the radio basically gives us information. You know, l- let me have what I need and I'll, I'll be out of here. Uh, but all these things are these kind of subtleties of personality and stories that begin and you don't know quite where they're in. You know, it's like Scott Carrier in a tree, you know, and, uh, and they're elliptical and they're poetic and they give, I think, the, a, a kind of a useful dose of strangeness to your day and make you think differently. You don't, they don't tell you exactly what, uh, what you expect. Biologist Jack Palmer of Falmouth. One of the first books that I ever wrote, I dedicated to my parents. And my parents know absolutely nothing about biology, even though their son was a biologist. This book I dedicated to them, uh, I sent to them with a covering letter. They were very pleased to have it and put it on their cocktail table, and I think it sat there for 15 years or something. And when they died and I went to clean out the house, I found it there. And when I opened it, it cracked. Obviously, it had never been opened. They (laughs) never read the letter, nor did they ever see the dedication that I had written to them. (laughs) What a shame. You're listening to WCAI, Woods Hole, Martha's Vineyard, and WNAN, Nantucket. But, you know, there you get this story, and it's like, you know, all of a sudden it's set. I mean, that that was, you know, 40 seconds. Uh, And, you know... 
you have this uh, strange experience with this guy, and it's kind of utterly random. It's like actually, you know, you have the parallel realities of the news of the day. There, you know, there's everything that happened, good or bad, in the world, and then they're your neighbors, you know. And uh, I think that the if, if if I would find a word that I would like to have described the station, it would be neighborly, uh, and that and invitational. There's also a weird power in these little stories that I think extends through all the work we do through this, I believe, and, and, and many other projects, which is just in the simple power of a shared story and the sense that we were, I was talking about earlier about how the sound gets inside you and can change you a little bit. Uh, you know, and we have like islands. We have, there's Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, and they don't like each other. I mean, they, uh, you know, Martha's Vineyard thinks it's better than Nantucket. Uh, and vice versa, and they're you know they're tribal like we all are. You know we have to figure out how to divide into teams for no good reason. Uh, but when you're living on Nantucket and on and on this radio station, and radio by definition respect does not respect boundaries. You know it travels across the water and doesn't care. Uh, and it carries to you uh, a voice of a guy uh, telling a story, and he's a, it's a good story. You know, it's about him catching a bluefin tuna, you know, with his bare hands, and he pulled it up on the beach, and it's funny, and uh, and you and you think, God, that's it. That, I, I like that guy. I like what he's, you know, I like the way he talks, and I like his story. And then at the end, you hear his name, and you hear he's from Martha's Vineyard, and then you have to, you know, adjust your worldview. You know, I mean, it makes us think, you know, that there's sort of a possibility for world peace. I mean, we do, the, you know, that if you let somebody else's story come in and you uh, manage to like them and then you find out they were the enemy, well, you know, what are you going to do? Here's another one. This is made by our current intern, uh, Ibby Caputo. <laughs> yeah, I have a big gun. 92-year-old Bonnie Robinson of Chatham. One animal I don't like is squirrels because they won't let the birds come to the feeders. And I have a little gun. You know, it has these little peanut things. It just hits them, and I'm a good shot. I don't think I have babies in there. Oh, yeah. See, so, yeah, gotta be careful. You're listening to the Cape and Islands NPR stations. <laughs> She shot her car. <laughs> Here's a little non-secretory. Oh, this one's made by an intern, too. I've somehow got, uh, I think this is maybe Jeremy Hobson, who then, I think he's now working at Marketplace. The worst thing about living on Nantucket for a teenager is probably the boredom. Stephen Hamblin of Nantucket. You're listening to WCAI Woods Hole, Martha's Vineyard, and WNAN Nantucket, the Cape and Islands NPR stations. Yeah. Here's another one by Chelsea. She did a whole series asking people what was in their lunchboxes. Another lunchbox. 
This one from Stan Owenkowski at the Steamship Authority in Woods Hole. Oh, I don't know. I have uh, I love you sandwich in here. I think it's a ham sandwich and yogurt and banana and cookies and juice and granola bar and all kinds of goodies. Can you describe the I love you sandwich? Oh, that's from my wife. She always does that to me. She loves me. My sister ham sandwich and tells me that she loves me. That she made me a nice sandwich. P.S. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You're listening to the Cape and Islands NPR stations. It just kind of changes your day a little bit. And I think it changes time. Uh, you know, it's just a little, you just check, you have to think of these not as like in this setting, but that they just popped out of, out of nowhere. Um, we tried to do uh, a, one of our ambitious projects at the station that didn't work, but I still think should, it was uh, uh, we had a sister station in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. And they had internet briefly, and we would we tried to work, we were working with Bill Seamering and set this thing up where they would send us sound and we would send them sounds, and there would some some of the, our little breaks like this would be from uh, Mongolia, for you know, and uh, you know we'd hear there'd be like tuva singing or they'd be playing with like sheep's knuckle bones after school and rolling the dice, and then we sent them like kids playing with video games and you know the sound of scallops clapping their shells and uh and it was great for a while and then their internet connection went down and we uh you know we haven't heard from each other ever since but i i missed them and it was such a good idea and and i you know uh you know we had one kid on martha's vineyard who wanted to be a tuva singer he said, he said get me i hate this place i hate living i hate the sea i want to be in the middle of the desert and just sing like that you know, and he was he would he worked on it, and he sang for them, and we sent them his attempts at doing tuva, you know, which is not easy. Uh, I play a few little pieces. There's not a heck of a lot more here, but I, these this is a project we did both at the radio stations uh, and at Transom, and kind of exemplifies this notion of the invitation to participate. You know, my hope is that you know listeners will become content and that we could then that it becomes a an exchange and that we all get a turn you know that my 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 secret goal is to get everybody on the radio before we, every every everybody in our community everybody in our town or the world for that matter the uh and this was an idea that came from one of the sonic ids and it was a list of all the different colors of white paint uh and it was read by the hardware salesman uh, but you didn't know what it was till the end. It was it's like a crazy schmaltzy poem, and he re- he's an amazing reader for a hardware store salesman. And then uh, we had a, a guest named Monica on uh, our uh, transom site, and she would do these things too. And they, they become stories with the title at the end. They're just lists of stuff. You don't know what they are, and then at the end you say what it was. And it's a it's a it turns out to be a remarkably kind of attractive narrative. Uh, structure and they're very short 
and they involve you because you're guessing all along the way. So I'm just going to play some of these. Some of them came in to the radio station. The first one I'll play was recorded here at Third Coast uh, by Ben Walker, and the person speaking is uh, Davia Nelson, one of the Kitchen Sisters who I work a lot with. Twenty-four, perplex. Twenty-three, midnight. Nineteen, fire on the roof. Sixteen, bronze bottom. Twelve, almond ice. Fourteen, sugar and ice. House on fire. Fire down below. Fire. Raspberry Dazzle, Mocha Chip, Mocha, Brandy, Brandy Mocha. Those are the lipsticks I have in my purse. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, too. <clears throat> but people would get into this, you know, and we had like radio producers send them, you know, and they would do productions around them. And then we had just people who would call up and they'd call them in on the phone. Here's one that came in over the voicemail, uh, voicemail line. Marbles in a candy tin. Mara's baby teeth. A veal bratwurst from Ruth's Meat Market from Oma. Julia's collection of old house and car keys. A homemade bracelet with the name Jake. A bouquet of local wildflowers, not all prairie, from David. A penny for each year. The blanket he was lying on the night before. A dog collar. These are the things we buried with our dog, Jake, on our family land in Primrose Township, Wisconsin, when Jake died this past spring. Bye. You know, and it's, uh, and then it, it works like, you know, you, it's like fish and bait. The fish become the bait because then the more people do this, you know, then somebody else gets inspired to give it a shot and go, oh, I... Th- thought of one and they uh and you know and and they pitch it and you know vocalo over at uh, bez's uh behaving like this in fact you know bez picked up the sonic id idea a bunch of stations have, have done it and tried it at kut in austin a lot of them uh and at bez i was hearing yesterday from the person who's coordinating it, which i really want to rip off from them but they they're going to do uh you know google maps of the community of chicago and then those little sonic id breaks will show up as you know, pinpoint markers, and you can click on any neighborhood or where you live and hear the stories of that place that uh, uh, pop up. So, I, I mean, I, I love this idea. I'd love to do it where we are, and uh, and then you know, as other stations do it. So, you know, you can, you can click on any spot and hear hear a little story of uh, someone's town. I'll play one more short list. This this one this one too is from Chelsea. Kinkos, twenty four hour copy centers in Boston. The park at Post Office Square in Boston's Financial District. The International House of Pancakes in Brighton. On the steps of Trinity Church in Boston. A student storage bin in the basement of Winthrop Hall at the Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. On the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral Church in Boston. Bickford's Family Restaurant in Braintree. The greats behind the Boston Public Library. 
White Hen Pantry convenience store in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The tunnel connecting Back Bay Station and the Copley Place Mall under a tarp along the Charles River. Places where I've had to spend the night. My name is Matthew. For the past six and a half years, I've been homeless on the streets of Boston, Massachusetts. So the stories, you know, you never know which way they're going to go, these little lists. And so we want to keep playing with this. On so Transom, if you have a good idea, we've got, we've got a place where you can drop them off on Transom, and we've put up a bunch of new ones. I, 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 should, I didn't listen to those, but... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just going to play one more excerpt and then uh, and close out because I know they've got some other stuff they have to tell you. This is um, uh, it, some of you may have heard this one, but I still think somehow it brings a lot of things together. It's um, uh, it's from the series Lost and Found Sound that I did with the Kitchen Sisters some years ago on NPR. And again, we invited people to send the things to us that they'd save, to save, you know, to uh, audio artifacts, whatever they had, uh, and, and that meant something to them. He said, send it in. And I think it proved to us, as much as anything, this uncanny uh, power that uh, sound holds, you know, uh, and, and, the, and the voices hold. I mean, people would say to us... Uh, uh, you know, about a recording like on a wax cylinder or on a vinyl, you know, a disc or an old cassette or, uh, you know, they were even vanished forms. We got sounds on, in, in uh, forms which we had to go to the Library of Congress even to find things to play them back on. Uh, but they would say, particularly about people who'd passed away, people they loved, they would say, it's all I have left. But they would say it as if it was an actual part of the person. You know, they wouldn't say that about a photograph. You know, I was listening to uh, uh, Sharon and Michelle, and you know, the kind of response that Sharon got. This is uh, the Katrina survivor. If, if, if those of you that went to Joe's session there, and the kind of response that she got, this outpouring of fellow feeling, uh, I think would not have happened if there had been a, photographs of her. Uh, in a magazine or a print article about her, and maybe not even uh, a TV report, because by just hearing her voice, you can hear into her and hear her soul, and, and, and you can imagine her and invent her, and this connection is made that's, that's, that's much different than any other media have, and, you know, and you know, hundreds of people just sort of wrote spontaneously trying to help her, and I think that's... Uh, that's partly because of what we hear in her voice. This tape came from a guy named Tim Duffy, who's a Vietnam vet, and had been driving around in his truck uh, keeping these uh, little cassettes from his friend, Mike Baranowski, and they'd served together in Vietnam. And uh, Mike had wanted to work in radio. Uh, he went over to Vietnam when he was 19. Uh, and he... Uh, you know, he, he had in mind to be a, a radio guy, and he was sort of practicing for it by using a little cassette recorder he'd picked up in Hong Kong and uh, would uh, send letters back home to his family, it's, it's sometimes in the guise of a radio correspondent. Sometimes they were funny, uh, 
Uh, but he had an amazing quality of observation. I mean, I, I, there were some 30 hours of tape we ended up working with. It was produced by uh, Christina Egloff and myself. And it's not our production I'm going to play. It's, a, it's his voice, you know, his 19-year-old voice. And uh, he was killed. He was on point in a patrol and was uh, uh, shot by a sniper. And, uh, but all these tapes, uh, Tim had kept them for almost 30 years, and then sent them to us. And then we worked with this and made a, 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 a half-hour documentary using Tim's voice and Mike's and a little bit of his family. And that was really about it, but mostly it's Mike. And uh, it, you know, it got a huge response from people because, again, it was this you know, one voice of this kid who, uh, uh, who has qualities of the reporting of Edward R. Murrow, honestly, in the, in the way he talks. And people wrote who were veterans and talked about how it expressed the kind of, uh, you know, the bonds that were formed in war and the tragedy of war. And people wrote who were anti-war demonstrators talking about how it was the most eloquent statement a- against war. And, and it was all just one kid's voice. So I want to play just the very end of that uh, for you because, you know, his voice is what's left. And um, this, uh, you'll, the first voice you'll hear is Tim talking about him, you know, as, as we finish the broadcast and what he wanted to do with the cassette because to honor Mike's wish to be on the radio and, and that he finally was. And then you just hear Mike uh, doing what he always did, which is travel everywhere with his tape recorder and talk to everybody. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's called The Vietnam Tapes of Lance Corporal Michael A. Baranowski. I think I can go to his grave now. I've never done it. Uh, and uh, take a copy of the tape and just kind of dig a little hole there and maybe we'll put one of the, a copy of the, of the broadcast there for him. I don't know. But I think it's, I'm going to have to go tell him that, that it worked, that he's been on the radio. and He made it. Well... That's my hooch, but what I usually do is stumble around. And if I can find my way through the darkness, I come down here and sleep with my friends, the Arvins. What I think I'll do right now is uh, I'll go down and talk to one of the men that's standing whole watch here on the hill. Who's here? Oh, how are you doing, man? Uh, you tired? No. Not tired, huh? No. I thought it would be uh, one of the Marines down in this hole. It's usually manned by a Marine. That's why you didn't hear the familiar halt who goes there. This is uh, one of my Arvin friends down here. His name is Nine. He's sitting here with his eyes half closed. The poor guy's been on watch. I don't know. How are you doing, Nine? Fine. Yeah, fine. You look like you're about to fall over. He's just sitting here on the sandbags, right up on top. He doesn't care who's out there. <laughs> Too tired to care about anything. Gate Muga? Muga? No. Gate Muga means uh, maybe rain. And he doesn't think so. I don't think so either. There are a billion stars visible tonight. Beautiful. Almost every night that's clear and now 
more and more nights aren't clear because the monsoon is fast coming. But those nights that are clear, almost every star that's visible with a human eye, I guess, is visible. Uh, it's a beautiful sight. Milky Way and all the constellations. Of course, they're a little bit different now that we're on the other side of the planet and looking at them from some weird cockeyed angle, I don't know. Hey, I've got some news for you. I made meritorious Lance Corporal today. How about that? Proud of me? Anyway, uh, the lieutenant handed me the paper and he said, uh, Congratulations, Lance Corporal Baranowski. And I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything. Wow. You see that shooting star now? See that? It was a big shooting star just now. And, uh, That was uh, mortars that just fired maybe uh, 40 feet in back of me. This is so much easier than writing. You get all the right voice inflections, and uh, I can do it in the dark, of course, which is nice, except that this damn red blinker here is liable to get me zapped, so I've got my hand over it. I'm not quite as awake as I should be when I try to tape, but just wanted to get this one off to you while I can, so that you'll have it and uh, know that I'm thinking about you. I think about all of you and miss you so much every day. You just don't have any idea, Mom and Dad, Cookie. Sandy and Terry, how good it was to hear your voices again. It was really wonderful. That's all I can say. What else can I say? It was really great to hear you all again. So it's just one voice. You know, Studs Terkel, who I hope we're going to get to see later tonight, who's uh, an inspiration to many of us who work in radio. Uh, uh, Sidney Lewis, who interviewed him for the site, said that uh, she asked him what his ideal broadcast day would be, and he said something real, you know, the human voice expressing, you know, grievance or joy or whatever, but something real. And... Um, you know, I mean, finally, it's that authenticity that catches my ear in the sense that, you know, uh, that I'm actually being, you know, spoken to and communicated with in a kind of non-manipulative way. And tape like that is, uh, you know, makes me feel that way. And I think the, uh, you know, my favorite thing and some of these favorite things is the invitation for us all to do that and for all our listeners to do that. You know, all my work now, you know, the uh, public radio exchange uh, and the public radio talent quest, which came out of that, is, you know, sort of flings that door wide open. You know, it's, it, there's no security system. You know, you can come in and steal tape and razor blades. Uh, 
uh, This I Believe or <clears throat> Transom or our radio stations uh, or this thing I've got called the Open Studio Project and Life Stories where I send out tape recorders with people. It's all about paying back that <clears throat> privilege that we get as citizens to share in our own public broadcasting system. I mean, that's the one last little vestige of sp spectrum that belongs to us. The rest of it is for commerce, and there's this little precious bit of it down there on the left that belongs to us, and it's up to us how we use it. And, uh, and for us, in many ways, how to share it, like all these youth radio groups here and the ways that people are trying to make sure that, uh, that, that they are welcome and that when we, as we age out, <coughs> someone else will you know, carry the baton forward. Uh, you know, I, I was on PRX, on Generation PRX, there are 55 youth radio groups signed up. I mean, that's astonishing from when I began in the 70s. There was, you know, no such thing as youth radio. Well, there's no such thing as public radio. I'm going to close because I... Uh, I, I, was, I was looking for uh, some thoughts from, from Bertolt Brecht, who, you know, I, I worked in the theater and I directed Brecht, and I, I, I really love his way of thinking. And I was looking for a quote from him about uh, sport and, you know, and events and, you know, ways he thought that people should pay attention in the theater, which he felt was musty. And I opened this book that I got, a, you know, a long time ago in New York because it cost $2.45, uh, and found an essay called The Radio as an Apparatus of Communication, and uh, written in 1932. So radio would just have been uh, becoming a phenomenon. There's no FM or anything, and you know maybe radios were just creeping into people's living rooms. It's it's at the dawn of radio, and here's what Brecht said about 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 it. <clears throat> radio is one-sided when it should be two. It is purely an apparatus for distribution, for mere sharing out. So here is a positive suggestion. Change this apparatus over from distribution to communication. The radio would be the finest possible communication apparatus in public life, a vast network of pipes. That is to say, it would be, if it knew how to receive as well as to transmit, how to let the listener speak as well as hear, how to bring him into a relationship instead of isolating him, on this principle, the radio should step out of the supply business and organize its listeners as suppliers. Any attempt by the radio to give a truly public character to public occasions is a step in the right direction. So, amen. Thank you very much.